you are listening to the empowering indian expats podcast if you are an indian living abroad feeling stuck in an average 9 to 5 or a job or business that's not helping you reach your full potential this is the podcast to tune in where you will find your role models and learn from their dream struggle victory stories this is your host ehsan ali a long time it professional living in sydney australia who has made it his mission to find and unpack the stories the strategies and life lessons of successful and inspiring indian expats to help you and i reach our full potential Today's guest is a young Indian expat who started his career in financial services in Australia and 7 years later he launched his own fintech company. His platform brings unique investment products to high net worth individual in Australia and these products are typically offered by large investment banks in US and Europe and are not available in Australia. I'm amazed how he pulled this business together with high net worth individuals on one side and global investment banks on the other side. I also wonder how he financed his business how he managed technology implementation he doesn't come from technology background I'm keen to learn what worked for him what didn't work and above all what inspired him to live a successful growing career he was just 7 years in employment so without further ado let's talk to Anto Joseph Welcome to the show Anto. Thanks Ashan, lovely to be here. I'm really excited to uh, take your story out today Anto. Why don't you give your introduction your way who yeah. you are today and what you do? Absolutely. Yeah. Firstly, I'm not that young. I feel a little bit older day by day and particularly when you're in a startup and and you're building a business, it feels like time is flying very quick primarily because you're having a lot of fun building it but also, you know, you know you're bringing a lot of sort of your skill sets and fast forwarding it you know com- maybe comparatively to a, a corporate role so yeah i mean for your for your audience i'd love to just introduce myself my name's anto i started a company a fintech a financial technology business i started that business about 2 and a bit years ago because i saw an opportunity to bring access to some of the investment opportunities that have been traditionally only available to private bank and institutional investors so right at the top end of town and i just saw an opportunity to bring opportunities from these global investment banks that shown you meant a little bit more to the front of the market making it more accessible for those who are looking for opportunities to enhance their income or even look at some of those growth opportunities that we're starting to see really take you know hold uh, across the world whether that be electric vehicles the green transition whether it be cryptocurrency you know there are a lot of opportunities out there but in our small part of the world here in australia we've been traditionally using equity market or the property market to invest right and this was just opening up another sort of vehicle using technology to access that have been traditionally available to private banking and institutional clients right so your platform basically brings in on one side your clients which are your actually both sides are clients for you you are a platform and you bring in australian investors which are high net worth individuals and businesses i believe yeah that's correct so yeah, yeah there's there's two components like you said one is where stroke road where the technology platform that sits in between yeah and then you got two other sides so you got these global investment banks that we're partnered with yeah. and we arrange their products from these banks onto our platform yeah. and on this side we have investors uh, on yeah. the left hand side on the other side really investors who are looking for these types of opportunities 
they can come to our platform to have open access to them. Right. So to me, both sides look like people who are hard to reach. So to me, it looks a very challenging endeavor. So how did you get into that? Why didn't you start with your, what's your background like? You were born in Australia or you moved to Australia when you were young? Yeah, look, I was born in Australia, but my parents are of Indian background. Yeah. Um, they came from Kerala in the late 70s. Right. Uh, but yeah, I, I was born in Australia. Uh, my background initially, before starting Stroker, I was in, in, in private banking with Citibank for a number of years. That's where I started my career after uh, finishing university. And instead of going down the typical sort of graduate path, I, I landed an opportunity through, uh, through a colleague of mine to work within the private bank. Very different sort of exposure than you would traditionally get, but I grabbed it sort of with both hands. It was the most, uh, probably the fastest learning experience for me, primarily because I was faced with customers day one who had complex investment problems to solve. And so I had to use my economics knowledge and finance knowledge that I gained from university. So you were pretty uh, raw, you know, just out of college. Uh, uh, very, yeah, very green. As, as one of my managers called me, he said, you're very green. Yeah. And he kept telling me that in the first sort of, you know, few months that I was in, in that role. But quickly, what you realize when you're put against the elements is that you have to either sort of adapt or you, you kind of fall off. Right. And so I was just put in a situation where I had to adapt, learn how to be sort of smarter with my applying my theoretical knowledge into practical application in conversations with clients about how they should approach their investment portfolio. And working with a bank like City at the time also gave me a lot of global reach. So things that right. I was very familiar with, right? Global banks tend to do more than just your typical uh, lending. Mm -hmm. uh, and equities, they, they do a little bit more. And that's where I started to get familiar with a broader set of investment opportunities. But having said that, I was in that role for about four years before I got the opportunity to build a business within uh, Citibank. And I guess... Okay. So before I go in that, I want to yeah, get a sure. quick insight into this four years thing. So day sure. one, what, were you, what was your role and roles and responsibility on day one when you started? Yeah, so I was a relationship manager. And basically, I looked after a series of probably about 80 to 90 high net worth individuals that were investing with the bank. And so I was given a portfolio of clients to look after. They already had investments with the bank. I was handed that sort of portfolio. And then I was also told to go and build that portfolio as so, well. Was there, any was there any KPI? Yeah, very. <laughs> yes, uh, absolutely. The, the KPIs were very high. I think the, the, I had to get certain revenue targets every month. It was typically sort of around thirty dollars to $40,000 in revenue that I had to generate for that business every month. So when you say revenue generation, meaning that much of money investors putting in or you had to grow their portfolio by that much? Well, what it meant was typically to generate thirty to 40000 in revenue, you would have to, it, the client would have to be, or your, your clients would have to be investing or doing business with you, probably in the order or transactions, somewhere in the order of about $1 to $2 million a month. You know, that typically would get you to that those sort of milestones. Mm -hmm. So... You know, you had to be heavily involved in the transactions. Mm -hmm. And I was dealing with foreign exchange trading, which is also very new to me, but that was very interesting. Something known as structured investments, which is what heavily StroPro is involved in today. 
yeah um, and a lot of fixed income or bonds which is very interesting so yeah yeah big big kpis for a, a 21 22 year old individual stepping into financial services i mean i can um, feel it it's i can really feel it uh, 21 year old talking to all h and i and if i remember right when i met you you have very normal middle class background your father was into mechanical stuff and mother was yeah, into that's health. Right. Yeah. So coming back to your job now, so the reason I ask is, see, many a times as professionals, you know, we spend 10 years, 20 years, and we still have inhibitions and fears and can I do this, can I do that? And at 21, you were thrown into an environment where your customers were high net worth individuals, uh, which you did not have understanding of because you come from a normal background. And on the other side, you had to deal with a lot of different people like traders and all sort of people who were actually putting the money in, in, in various investments. You were a relationship manager. You were sitting in the middle. You were kind of coordinating on both sides, but you had a revenue target. Mm. So very challenging. In my mind, it's very... Do you remember early days, the challenges you faced and did you break down any time? Did you have to take help of your managers? Did you... Yeah, uh, have to rely on any mentor or any of those things happen in those four oh, years? Absolutely. Like one of the things I relied on heavily was the experience of those who had been there and done it before and reflecting on those and, and leaning on them to give me the guidance that I needed to get through the difficult times. And uh, particularly in the first sort of six months in that role, when you're speaking at such a, a more complex level of conversation about markets, market invest uh, investments, portfolio allocation, you know, all these kind of more, you know, foreign concepts as a, as a university student in some ways. And um, again, that taking the theoretical knowledge into practical knowledge, you definitely relied on your, your sort of superiors to seek that guidance. So a lot of my um, mentorship was my manager at the time who had been a relationship manager as a private banker, dealt with a portfolio of clients, and he would spend a lot of time with me in a lot of our meetings and he would step in to obviously introduce a lot of those conversations and then let me try and jump in at the most critical points to yeah. test how I would, you know, throwing me off the deep end, yeah. so to speak. But that was very powerful, learning with someone side by side and something that I've always encouraged is learn from your peers is yeah. something that's always stuck, by, particularly those who've been doing it uh, well and doing it for a long time. True. Um, true. So that, was, that was what my experience was like you know, dealing with those challenges, particularly yeah. clients who had a huge amount of wealth. Here I am trying to tell them what might be an appropriate thing to consider. That, that's exactly what I was thinking. Like, it's kind of an imposter syndrome. Like, who am I, who am I to really guide or, you know, suggest you know, these guys are already so well accomplished? Yeah, and and this is why I thought, you know, where where you had power in conversation, where you could build trust and credibility with investors was really understanding markets and how they behave right. and if you could get your first few decisions with them right yeah you're slowly building great trust and credibility with them so being my my sort of focus there was if i i'd become more familiar with market news every day mm -hmm. and what are the what are the key things to consider when markets are moving and what decisions to make and what do the best investors do in different situations so and and to when you say market, it's very broad, right? You're talking about equity, you're yeah, talking about commodity. About financial markets. Yeah, so yeah. everything, right? Equity and bond and fixed deposit or structured investment or forex and everything. Yeah, look, it's not only all these different asset classes, 
but also like how, okay, currency is a big factor, right? You know, yeah. what's happening with, you know, with the Aussie dollars, what, what are the things that impact the Australian dollar versus USD? Yeah. Because a lot of our clients were holding different currencies and they want to make, take speculative decisions and make profit out of moving in and out of different currencies. And then you start. So the world, any incident happening across the globe, the, the political environment, all of those things. All those things. So whether it be ge geopolitical things that are going on, whether it be things that are affecting currency, you know, diplomatic conversations, we're seeing that right now, yeah. you know, the impact of what's happening in China, yeah. the France issue with Australia. These are all factors which I had be had to learn to become really accustomed to being on the pulse with. Mm. So and what did you enjoy this 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 four years of journey of maturing oh. into a powerful relationship manager? Did you enjoy learning all these things? Or if you have to call oh, up, like, you know, these are the top three things I enjoyed in this journey. What would you say? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I loved it because one, it gave me resilience, right? Yeah. I think what, what, that relation, or what that role taught me was to be very resilient with mm. customers. Because at the end of the day, investors, and I, and I kind of say they're, they're a little bit fickle because they measure you on every bit of performance that you have, right? Yeah. Yeah. So for me, it taught me to be very resilient. Mm. Have, obviously in-depth conversations, calculated decision-making and take their sort of best interests at heart all the time at the front of the conversation. Resilience was the first thing. The second thing it taught me was relationships are much more important uh, than anything else in the world. So mm -hmm. fostering very strong relationships, which could last, you know, you know, more than a couple of decades. One thing a client taught me was they said, well, one day, Anto, you're not going to be my relationship manager. You know, you move on to bigger and better things. But if I see you in the street across the road, then I want to be able to come over and say hello to you without having any grievances or issues. So that taught me one thing. Everything that I do from a decision-making point of view or information or insights mm. is driven by the fact that would I be able to shake this person's hand, you know, mm. in the next 10 years, 20 years confidently and, and say that, you know what, you know, we, we're good friends first and foremost, but also, you know, we, we made the right decisions and we had great insight, calculated decision-making and it was like not it. driven by self-interest. Got it. Love it. Love it. So what was the best high for you in those four years before we jump into your next opportunity that you got, which you ran for next three years? Yeah, look, absolutely. I think what, the, what was really good for me in those years was the number of clients that ended up becoming my close friends. I think what's, it really steps in this view that, you know, I was seen as a relation, a true relationship manager. I was very well networked. I learned how to network really well. And a lot of my clients would invite me to their broader community circles because they felt that I would add value in the conversation. Mm. And um, they brought me as their banker, which was which was nice to nice to obviously know that they did have that trust. So trust, yeah. For me, a lot of the clients that I started out with, you know, they might may have invested a very small amount yeah. to begin with in yeah. those early days. But a lot of those clients over four years ended up building portfolios with me well in well excess of five to ten million dollars. Wow. So what it, what, it, uh, what it taught me is 
strong relationships drive long-term value mm. and essentially people stay with you if you treat them well. <laughs> mm. So the networking part of it or building relationship part of it, did it come naturally to you? You were already good at that? Or? Oh, look, it didn't come naturally to me. And by all means, when I started, I was definitely a lot more shy as an individual and I was I was happy being at my desk. Mm. But um, the reason why the relationship thing was important is as I got more confident with my financial market knowledge and my ability to position my, I guess, the investment side, it also gave me confidence to speak to more people and bring mm. them more into my network. And what you realize, Eshan, probably in speaking to similar, similar people like me, Mm. is that in sales or in any sales or investment sales role, the more people you know, the more valuable, right? Mm. So it became ingrained in me that if you want to be successful in sales and successful in, in managing people's money, you have to build a bit of brand equity behind you. And the only way you build brand equity is if, if people know you and, and what you stand for. You stand for and what results you create for them. Exactly. And so... It was a natural thing for me to realize, well, if I want to do this long term, mm. then I need to network and I need to build more relationships and not just rely on, you know, the portfolio that I've been given. So, yeah, definitely about 12 months in, I became much more focused on that. Yeah. So three things you, you I got from is this relationship, networking and know your stuff. You know, that's yeah. where the, because. Yeah. Yeah. Have, if Know your stuff is the biggest one. Yeah. Like. We ask people not to be domain experts in everything. Yeah. Like you can be very all-rounded, great knowledge. And I yeah. think that's really powerful. But if you're very honed in and you have specific expertise in something, firstly, own that, yeah. you know, own that domain expertise and then be able to communicate it simply, right? Perfect. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So now I kind of, uh, I was very intrigued with your business model, like on both sides, very high, high potential, high power uh, people. How did you pull it together? Now I'm able to understand in your first four years itself, you developed a very strong relationship with a lot of uh, high net worth individuals. So you're kind of one side of the platform is, is kind of covered. So let's talk about the next phase of your job in city where you actually build a business within city. Sure. So that phase was very life-changing for me because after about four years of managing clients, I just felt like this was now the next step for me is I need to be trying to build a bigger, you know, bigger sort of role for myself. I need to step up in my career to the next level. And so I was sort of given an opportunity where our business at the time was looking to grow its client presence and acquire clients more faster. Now, obviously, acquiring high net worth individuals in Australia is, is, is a task. It's an expensive task. And so all, all, all the banks, everyone's out there looking for these sort of individuals. And so I was given an opportunity to go take over an existing sort of infrastructure, a little bit of a business that was already there. That business was focused on servicing corporate clients and their employees. And we realized very quickly that that can be done digitally. Most people today, if they need a credit card, a bank account, something that works really well for them, they'll do it all online. It's not and a high touch uh, environment. Exactly. Yeah. And, and that can be moved online. You don't need five, six people running a business, going out to all these employers and trying no. to build that. Everyone becomes a bit more self-directed that way. Yeah. The business I was told, I was given an opportunity to go, Anto, would you be able to find a way to grow our channels of client acquisition, you know, from other businesses, other centers of influence, accountants, mortgage brokers, accountants, uh, lawyers, law firms, and then look at also an acquisition path from overseas. 
city obviously had a Citibank obviously had a strong presence globally, and it was also trying to see, well, can we leverage our brand in Asia, in broader Asia and Europe, to bring clients through who are migrating to Australia? So I was given this opportunity to build a business focused on client acquisition in that high net worth segment and try and build an infrastructure to bring a funnel of clients in, which we hadn't really focused on before. In fact, the way we were hiring before uh, finding these individuals was through word of mouth, our website and having a bit of a digital presence out there. We weren't going and actively finding sources where these clients sit. And a term that I commonly use there is, where do high net worth investors play? You know, right? where yeah. do they play? And so the question was, I was tasked to find out where do they play? Who's dealing with them? Is there a way for Citibank to be involved in that conversation? Interesting. So, so uh, tell me a little bit of how did you start? Before that, a question came in my mind. So when you reached out to these people, uh, what was your value proposition? Did you go with like, these are the kind of products you can use to create so-and-so result? Or what was your value proposition to these high net worth individuals when you were accessing them or bringing them as clients? A lot from when I was there to, to today. So initially, a lot of people were looking for, you know, someone to be their wealth manager, a, a private banker, someone to look after their holistic deposits and lending. And then what naturally comes from there is, well, look, we've got this investment suite on the side that you should also consider. So primarily, most people are finding a place for their deposits if they've built some wealth or they're looking for a lender, you know, because they're purchasing their first properties or investment property, et cetera. We found that by naturally building a conversation there, it could also lead down to investment discussions. Got it. So tell me, that, how did you go about it? You know, day yeah, one. So, yeah, we were focused when we were building that business. What, we, what I realized was that we got to be partnered with what I call centers of influence. So for me, that was really about aligning ourselves with businesses that have a gap on what they service. So an accountant, right? They have specific um, role with their client, which is typically you know, tax, tax structuring and uh, making sure, obviously, from that perspective, the client is looked after, but they're definitely not giving investment advice. They may not have bank accounts to service the clients, et cetera. So for me, it was a natural conversation. You know exactly the client you're dealing in with and whether they're not, whether they are high net worth, they fall into that category. And typically yeah. that in Australia, that means two and a half million net assets or 250K in income. That's typically the de definition when you fall into a wholesale client. Okay, but good. The, the accountant would be looking after these clients and have a full view of the financials, but they weren't able to offer everything. So True. I said, well, look, well, why doesn't City come in and perform this function, right? Where you can elevate your brand because now you're partnered with City. So you're yeah. an accountancy practice yeah. in so-and-so. And now you get to partner with City and we both, you elevate your brand and you also elevate the proposition that you can deliver to your high net worth. Yeah, uh, more, more holistic solution than just doing tax. That's right. And that too... I can bring market, I can bring our market commentators, our economists, all these people to the table, which will make, it means that you don't have to go out of your way as an accountant to go find this expertise. And what we ended up doing was spending a lot of evenings where we put together lunches and evenings where we were focused on the accountant bringing their top five or 10 clients across. City would come in, we would put on a, a presentation with our economist, share some market insights, 
and share opportunities and trends that they should consider. So you are educated. You are heavily educated. That's right. It's a great harmonious relationship. Mind you, we also didn't really focus on tax structuring and structuring advice. Mm. So for us, if there were clients in our, you know, in our sort of presence that needed that, we would also be able to provide them back to our top sort of these centers of influence, these accountants. Right. So, so you you did yeah. yeah. So now I can see that. So their value was uh, accountants' value was not just being attached with uh, a big name but was also getting more clients through you. Yes, absolutely. Okay, perfect. And that was what I found was the right ecosystem balance. Yeah, if makes we sense. If you're able to help them in some way, yeah. right, then that relationship just doesn't work. True, very true. And particularly, I would a lot of my the partners that we worked with, I said, look, the first six months is a pilot program, right? Yeah, yeah. In that time, can we, you know, hand on heart in six months, sit down together and say you had a mutual benefit there was a mutual benefit from both sides our clients won our businesses won as well so if that was happening it typically meant that that relationship was going to be fostered and not only Eshan, we did that with accountants we did that with mortgage brokers migration agencies law firms and these are some of the top sort of businesses across australia and then we started putting our footprint a little bit into asia as well as i grew my team I ended up strategically placing them in other countries as well, where they could essentially bring clients through the door that way. Wow, that's awesome, man. I mean, so I really love this whole thought process of uh, tapping into the center of influence rather than going to individuals. And uh, then the next thing you did was you actually asked these your client or your partners to bring in their clients and you did the education because a lot of people are not aware of what's possible. And I think that's where you tapped in and you went out, you went in front of them and did the education. And and, and also there's a little bit of a cultural aspect to it as well, understanding customary practices. For mm-hmm. example, some of our partners who are dealing with clients from, let's say, mainland China, you know, when it came to Chinese New Year, when it came to significant calendar events and you know, cultural factors, those events weren't just about doing market insights and market knowledge. Some of those events were about, you know, what are some of the traditional dances and artistic things that are happening in, you know, Northern China, for Mm. example. Mm. And we would bring that into an audience that's coming in from Northern China. And the power of that is it's, there's now a mutual understanding here that we respect the your culture. culture, where you come from. And, you know, we want to foster our relationship around understanding that. So it was really big for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a massive learning curve for me, but it was also extremely important for me to really truly understand what drives people. And I think we might have spoke about this uh, a while ago, but we built a coffee uh, table, uh, a coffee book, that a coffee table book, I should say. Coffee and table that, book. Ooh. Yeah. And all that was, was all the migrants that we were dealing with coming into Australia, you know, they're not interested. First question is not investing. No. Their question is, well, what's my first, you know, business opportunity, job? Where's my kid? Where are my kids going to school? You know, what is my healthcare looking like? What, how does transport work? Who do I know here that can help me, you know, find the right product? There's a lot more questions than investing. So we spent mm. time building a, a book dedicated to how do you get yourself set up in Australia in the first 
six months. Wonderful. And that book, I, I think we produced like maybe two or 300 copies of it. Um, it was tailored. It was language specific. It took me a lot of time to put together, but yeah. worth the effort because just on that, it became a relationship building exercise. Yeah. Wonderful. Love it. So it was a powerful gift to your potential clients. Oh, of course. If, that, if that's their first experience of Australia, that people actually care on how they're actually, you know, sort of migrating to the country, it was very powerful. Yeah. Awesome. So starting from absolutely, I mean, you had few clients, but it was not very structured. And for next three years, you grew it. So tell yeah. me a little bit about where it started and where it ended before you left. Yeah, look, so without going into so much detail, but we took that probably to about a six to $8 million revenue business. And then I, and then we, when I left the business, obviously for Stropro, it was left in very good hands of the person who's managing it there now as well. So they've been able to grow that substantially even more. So six um, to eight million when you say it's a... Uh, in uh, revenue per year as a business. Okay. So as a business, it was, it was doing really well because we were accessing this corridor of clients through our centers of influence yeah. and we were doing it very fast. Yeah. And we actually built over probably 200 partners that sort of three-year period. And we were seeing amazing results because there was just this huge network we were tapping into without spending millions of dollars just on digital advertising about sitting right. So you know, purely relationship-based, absolutely. Purely relationship-based. I took what I learned as a relationship manager yes. and just tried to, and basically try and scale that. Yes. No, I love it. I, I like yeah. the whole whole thing. Did you, I mean, when you're looking back, do you feel like you were, you always enjoyed building relationship or again, you have to push oh, it like a job? I think there's a thrill in it, right? Because... I think there's a thrill in the fact that when you build a great relationship with someone and that relationship, you know, can last, you know, a decade, if not more, you know, of your time. And then from that other opportunities grow, like I call it in some way, it's a safety net in your life, mm, right? You're interesting. Always gonna, you're always going to go through sort of ups and downs in your career. And I always tell people there's definitely going to be a point in your life when you don't have a job, you know, markets mm. change, you mm. know, you know, restructuring could happen. But if you have a very strong network of people around you, it's very easy to go and reach out to them and access them to help you navigate some of those rocky parts, mm. but also be able to add value when you're in good positions to be able to add value to their business, their social circles, their life as well. So yeah, for me, uh, definitely, uh, there's a great thrill in building relationships primarily because I know that at one point that it also acts as a bit of a safety net and a, and a, and a good web around your life as, mm -hmm. as things, as things change. About it, Anto, I really liked uh, the way you shared it. No, I, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, most of us are not really strategic about building our network. I, and look, I mean, look, strategic is one way to describe it. It's definitely not the way I approach it going in. Yeah. I think what's interesting is that some relationships People are very quick because of their time sensitivity to yeah. probably go, look, what, what, what are you bringing to the table? Yeah. Um, and sometimes you have to be very direct and this is what I'm doing and this is exactly just what I'm transactional, doing. Very transactional, very transactional. Um, that's, that's just life. A lot of people are like that. But the more, if, if, if you can win a few good transactions and prove your worth early, then it ends up becoming a good relationship anyway. True, so very true. I think I think you just have to understand when is it a, a point of building a relationship and it might take a lot of time to also realizing this is a transaction and I need to execute this transaction 
very fast, efficiently, and prove trust through timing, right? Understand? Absolutely. And that's really important. Absolutely. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so this is the second chapter of your career where you built a business within city. And what made you look for the next opportunity when it was already going well? Yeah, so when I was there, I think this is, this is a very interesting part of my life because I saw what I was able to do when I had a bit more freedom. When I was a private bank you know, uh, manager, you know, I was looking after high net worth clients, I had to stay in a particular lane. These are the investment suite. This is the market financial knowledge. And, you know, these are your clients and you have to marry these three things together. It was very clear, you know, you have certain KPIs to deliver, blah, blah, blah. And when I became in, in this business, they asked me to build acquisition channels. So I had to go take what I knew and start building out a infrastructure around it. Part of that infrastructure was I had access to, you know, being able to propose building technology to support those partners. So one of the things I requested day one is, well, if I'm going to partner with an accountant and that accountant gives me a client, I don't want that accountant to not know where their client is in a process. So right. if they give me a name and a number and say, you should talk to John Smith, I need to know at any point in time, I can tell that accountant, look, John's just had his second meeting with one of our advisors. It's progressing well. The problem was there was no technology to support that. Mm. So by building, it's great to build relationships, but if you don't have processes to support the visibility between two stakeholders, right. you can lose trust very quickly. And so I was given the ability to build technology to support our, our centers of influence, mm. right? Mm. And so what that allowed me to do is get my first exposure to going, okay, I've given a budget and given a bit of money to spend. I'm going to implement it on this technology. What does the first version of this technology piece look like? And in six months, can I show that for this investment, I generated this return on investment? Right. right? And if I could do that, then I could get more money to mm. spend on further enhancements on that experience. Yeah. So in those three years, I ended up building a great, uh, well, I'd like to think, a, a great technology platform mm. within my business to support the onboarding of those partners, the mm. tracking of their referrals right to us, and then ultimately exactly how they get incentivized or commercialized, they had mm. complete visibility. Wow. So what that meant was I knew exactly who our top 20 partners were. I knew exactly with one particular client, when you're servicing three or 400 clients from these partners, I knew where John Smith from this partner was in that chain. Yeah. Um, and that, to answer your question, was what inspired me to think, well, what about if we could apply more technology to the right areas where there are gaps? Right. And the biggest, and the biggest gap, and I'm sure we'll kind of get into it, but the biggest gap was supporting these unique investment opportunities. The technology was just missing. It just didn't have enough support to make clients more engaged their experience in engaging with the products and the information was re just really missing and they were heavily reliant on the private banker mm. and that was for me that's just that's just not city that's everywhere to be honest mm. the private banker is very much the, the true source of the information mm. we just felt that we could help private bankers and bankers become a lot more nimble you know they had information at their fingertips and we felt the experience we could give investors 
could be much faster, much more digitized. And that's exactly sort of how Stropo came to be. Mm, interesting. So now I'm, I'm very clear about how the whole thing uh, came about. So the first four years was relationship building. So you got connections with high net worth individuals. Then the next three years was about actually building a business within city using partnership model. While you were doing that, you build a technology for tracking and analyzing and you know incentivizing incentivizing and everything so you were kind of ready like okay now i see this big gap my high net worth clients within australia do not have access to a lot of investment opportunities that people outside have and if i can bring in together i already like building technology and i already have some connections was that the thought process when you said okay yeah it was i like building not only do i like building technology but the power that technology gives me with data yeah. to be able to drive better decisions, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And it actually it actually improves the decisions you make. Instead of building technology for the sake of building technology, you know, I always thought, okay, what does day one look like? Mm. And if I can build day one effectively and learn from that, then, okay, here comes day two. This is the new feature we're going to add to add more value to mm. our clients mm. and mm. generate more revenue. And so that's kind of... So, Anto, before we enter into your... Uh, Strato Pro, right? You say Strato Pro. Stro Pro. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Stro Pro. Stro, no, Stro Pro. So before we it's enter a... in Stro Pro, I just want to ask a couple of questions on your experience in building technology solutions as the as a business head in city. Did you have any challenges because you did not have any technology background? Yeah. So I didn't have a technology background, but I had technology experts around me. And what I could communicate with them was business requirements. So what I could communicate was the problem, mm. whether it be a, a customer-facing uh, problem, you know, an engagement problem. I could communicate what the problem was, build some requirements around it, and then leave that to the designers and the tech guys to figure out how to solve for it. <laughs> and a lot of my early days was, you know, with Stropro was just simply wireframing on a piece of paper what I think the platform should look like and feel. Now, I'm, I'm not an artist. I'm not a designer. But it was trying to take what's up here and try to visualize it as quickly as possible. So Got for it. me, there's, there's no point in having ideas. It's just how quickly you are to execute. And so for me, get it down on paper, go talk to the right people, you know, and see if they can bring your vision to life. And this is what, again, back to that earlier point, you're not always going to have the expertise in certain areas. You just have to lean on the right expertise and try and execute on an, on an idea, even if it's day one capacity, as quickly as possible to go test it to market. I like what you said. You know, you're creating that, that we call it uh, MVP. The, That's right. Yeah. And uh, now I like that idea. So one question still remains in my mind with no technology background. How do you really ensure the technology people that you have in your team are the right people? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. So... Initially with, with um, Stropro, I built a team around me of, of basically co-founders of the company. And in, I had obviously a, cl a close colleague of mine that I used to work with at City, Ben Streeter, who's our chief product officer. He had product knowledge and investment knowledge, and he chaired the investment uh, committee at Citibank. And then around him, I brought one of my clients that I used to look after, Rob Nichols, who's an investor. So he's an investor in products. He's an angel investor. He understands investing and the customer pain points, right? And then the sort of fourth person I brought around me was a guy called Abe, uh, Abraham Robertson. 
who is a serial, I call him a, a, quite a serial entrepreneur generally, yeah. but had experience in building, you know, sort of commodity and exchange platforms and right. had a lot of understanding about technology innovation in Australia, right? right. In different verticals, you know? And so what I would do is, again, take my thought process, communicate it to these guys, particularly guys who had experience in finding the right talent for certain projects. And then they would go help me find the right. And look, there's a lot of experimentation early on. Mm. You're, you're putting your trust in someone else mm. to bring your vision to life. Right. And I think what it's, what's really important is to keep it as simple as possible, first version, and go test it. See right. if it resonates. If it right. resonates, then invest more time into it. And, and I think that's, that's probably a message that I would say that I had to take on was don't, so, don't invest a lot of time into something yeah. that may not work. So one thing you did really well, I can see, you brought in right people. So you played the role of an entrepreneur. You were, you, you were not self-sufficient to pull it off alone and no entrepreneur is. So you brought in uh, the right kind of people with right experiences. How did you convince them? You were you know, working in city and you said, oh, I'm going to quit and I'm going to start this. And they are sure. all high profile people with lots of experience, lots of insights into the market. So why would they, and of course you had good relationship, I understand, but when it comes to being together in a business, they have their own world going on. And why would they oh. join you and in your journey, in your vision, how did you go about it? Did you have challenges or it all, it was all coming smoothly? It's, it's actually a very profound question. And I think that really comes down to demonstrating your track record and whether your track record is scalable because mm. the track record that I had at, at obviously building the partnerships business and that, that partnership model was quite successful at city. And at least mm. in the early days, it's right. become more, a bigger beast now, which is great and great to see. Yeah. Um, but you know, that track record was really important to show mm. that I had the skills from a sort of a distributional sales perspective to bring the right clients to the table. Right. Right. The other thing was the products itself, the track record on the products. When I was a private client uh, manager or yeah. looking after those individuals, one of the key things was the products that I was offering through that period, City was able to build a staggeringly large business out of it because those mm. specific products met the requirements of investors, which was enhancing income and giving them some protection if the market was to be a bit volatile. Mm. And Remember, in two, when I started in 2012 and markets, interest rates were just slowly moving down, down, down. They were moving from previous couple of years before that from, you know, 7% onwards down all the way down to where we are today. Mm. So in an in a interest rate, you know, downward interest rate environment, mm. people were looking for ways to enhance their yield and get a little bit of protection if the market's volatile. And so mm. the products we did spoke to that and the track record we built out of that was we took a $400, $400 million business and turned it into a $4 billion business with the team that was there, that private wealth team. Mm. And so you got the track record with the investment products. You, right. you can show that these products are valuable. Mm. You can show the track record in scaling and distribution team and right. building in the clients. Mm. All I needed was to then convince people, can, well, can you help me with the, the technology, the, the digital innovation, the Ben, can you help me with getting the products and getting mm. our relationships with these banks up and running? And it became it, it just a, connecting a jigsaw puzzle at that point, right? We all had very specialized skills and we could right. show a track record. Right. But it was now going, well, look, if we put this together, 
yeah. could this be a, a $50 billion you know, yeah. market that we could create? Yeah, no, that's awesome, uh, Anto. I really liked what you have done. In terms of, because we do not, of course, your father has started his own business. You know, he, were, he was having a car repair garage, if I remember. But you, I mean, of course, you saw your father doing and that influence is always there. But this is a very different beast that you were getting into, you know, both sides, high net worth individuals and large organizations. And of course, you build partnership. But did you have any element of fear and what if it doesn't work? And I know you, you also said you had the network. So you knew if something doesn't work, you can fall back on network and you can get a job. So that mental security you definitely have. But did you have any other challenge, anything in the early days that you would like to call out? Oh, look, I think in the early days, when you're starting your own business and you become the CEO, the, the managing director of your own enterprise, the biggest fear is how quickly can I scale my skill sets to mm. meet such a demanding role, right? Mm. I love because, what you said, man. Most people yeah. think business is about just making money. And they don't really put themselves out there saying that, do I have the skills to do all this? Yeah, and, and to be honest, the fear for me was, do I have the skill sets yeah. of that particular role? One, running a fintech, running a fintech with people who are obviously just as equally, if not better, more experienced than me, um, yeah. managing all these resources and then taking, uh, obviously, investor money, which was you know, raising capital from investors to make your dream come alive. Because you had an inherent responsibility to your shareholders to see, the, see this vision through. And so for me, one of the biggest fears that I had initially was, am I the right man for the job, mm. right? Mm. Am I the right person for the job? Is there someone more capable than me to take this job? And I said this very early on to the people that I was with. I was like, guys, yes, I've had this idea. It's, it's coming together. We've got the right people around the team. And it's like, is Anto the right person to take this, you know, and lead the charge here? Yeah. And, you know, over time, what's given me comfort is, you know, having worked with this team closely, that we have a very open discourse of communication very around, nice. you know, where our weaknesses are, where our strengths are, what, mm. we should be, what we should be prioritizing. And we have just a very open communication culture. So... Mm. Look, am I am I you know one of the one of the best CEOs in Australia? By no means, no. But I, I think what's interesting is that if you work with a cohort of people who can support your growth and identify areas for you to grow, yeah, then you'll find and you can take on that advice without feeling the need you're inadequate in any way. Mm. I think that's been a real a real learning curve for me, a real positive for me. I've definitely grown in my role if from two years ago. Anything specific you want to point out? Like these were the skills I thought I had, but I didn't have. And these are the things I grew on. Just a couple of things. I, I think I've always had a bit of charisma. And I must say, in my presentations and my ability to speak to an audience has always been sort of there. Awesome. Um, and that's always worked well with a team when you're trying to inspire them yes. in a fintech, right? Yes. You're asking people with very strong expertise and corporate experience as well to come in and, and work to to build this dream, right? Yeah. And you know, that's been my probably exciting part. That's been the growth for me yeah. is to take these individuals on a on a similar journey. Yes, you know, it's it wasn't their business in the beginning, but trying to get them on the same wavelength as you has been sort of the biggest growth. The yeah. second one I would say is if I look at it, is my growth as a, in terms of finding out what's going to cause the most impact in my day, 
So, you know, when I started, I was trying to take on a lot of things, you know, oh, the technology side, well, we need to do this. Uh, uh, on the marketing side, we need to do this. Or we, we need to build this program and do this. Oh, the product side, I need to create this product. I had to kind of take a little bit backward step and go, what are the things, obviously one, that I can really delegate? Two is really, what are the things that are gonna be the highest impact activities? You know? mm, I, I like it, yeah. And that's really looking at where tomorrow is coming in. So instead of spending a lot of time, you know, sometimes in the weeds trying to build your business, you're going to end up spending more time looking at your strategic vision of your business, right. and whether you have the infrastructure in place to see that vision come alive. So a lot, a lot of people, when they start their business, they're so stuck in the weeds because they're trying to build it. It's difficult. Yes. You know, it's challenging. It, it takes so much of your energy, sleepless nights trying to, you know, all these things. If you can try and get out of that and spend more time, I think, on the, the bigger picture mm. and the strategic things you can put in place to see that come alive, mm. that's the one thing I would say is being my growth. You know? Mm. I like well. it. I like what you said. And you all highlighted this is the challenge and this is how uh, you did it. Anything else in terms of challenge? Especially uh, one thing was coming in my mind because you brought in different people and you hired staff in technology in sales and stuff like that how did you manage the funding part of it yeah look, we, we raised capital initially through a group of private investors okay and then what we were able to do is show uh, you know uh, again uh, as i was saying it's like what is day one you know day, yeah. build this, our first technology platform was rubbish to be honest you know uh, it was amazing for me when i opened it up i thought okay the first time we've digitized this institutional product yeah. And we got a client purchasing. We had nine clients purchase our first product, and I was over the moon, right? <laughs> because we were the we were the first to digitize this experience. What I realized was, you know, we could show that the the process works, and now we need more investment in us to grow. And you know, going on from there, we ended up raising another round of capital through a series of more private investors and a few different venture capital firms in uh, mm. in Australia, which was. Very, very promising and, you know, very encouraging. Yeah. But I think what was interesting is most of our shareholders or investors in Stropro are actually clients on the platform. So interesting. That's, <laughs> so for me, what's interesting is that, you know, you, you have to understand, I guess, the people who are going to support you and give you a check and say, well, take this, I believe in you and you can grow. They also have to be kind of users of what you do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So, you know, if, that, if that's the biggest test, you know, mm. would, would would the people that are providing you the check to grow, would they use what you do? Mm. I think is a big, a big step forward for us. Will we raise more capital? Absolutely. I think it's just about time to think about that in the near future. But yeah, we've got some big growth plans. So, you know, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we if we looked at that in the near future as well. Fantastic. So uh, currently, how does your business look like in terms of uh, the both sides, in terms of the number of uh, high network clients yeah. in Australia, plus on the other side, which is what kind of uh, investment bankers you have been able to bring on the platform? Yeah, sure. So we've had about 550 plus clients join the platform in the last sort of 12 months, which has been very exciting. Again, that's been really organic growth. I wouldn't yeah. say... We've had the privilege of being in media like Financial Standard, AFI, yeah. and a few other pieces, which is nice. But the cool thing is, you know, we've been growing that really through word of mouth, a few, you know, sort of intimate events 
and yeah. um, growing it word of mouth, really. On the other side, at the moment, we have partnered with Society General, Credit Suisse, and, and City. Uh, sort of those are the three banks that we've... So with. City would have been easy for you. Uh, all of you had some sort of credibility there, but how did you go uh, about the Credit Suisse and other places? Oh, look, it's again, it's again back to that point about so the track record that Ben Streeter, my the chief product officer and founder of Stropro, co founder of Stropro, he had those deep relationships with these investment banks for many years. I see. And so it was actually easier for us to approach them and say, look, this is our vision. This is where we could support you. Do you believe in that vision? And if so, support us and we'll see what we can do together. Yes, each one of those relationships takes time and uh, definitely and takes time to build. It takes time to build. But yeah. also there was a trust there because they could look at what we've done before Got it. To, to trust partnering with us. And so that's been very important. That's awesome. Um, so we have about three banks and in the process of signing another three more in the coming month. Awesome. Would you be comfortable sharing how much is the fund under your, what is it called? Fund yeah. under administration? Yeah. So we're basically, we've just touched over sort of 30 million in sales uh, awesome. over the over the last sort of uh, 12 months. It's been awesome. very exciting. Very and, exciting. <laughs> you know, again, again, like, to be honest, like we've got a, a great network of clients who, yeah. to be honest, after the first couple of transactions, I, I personally and, and my team walked them through the first few, but, yeah. um, and that's because we believe in that relationship building. Yeah. Um, but over time, what we found is our clients become very autonomous. So yeah. we will we will find opportunities, we'll share it for the investment platform, and the platform's designed to educate and engage. Mm. So once they have the information of their risks and benefits of something, then they're basically in a position to invest. Awesome. You gave a lot of insights into your journey and to which I was I was actually very, very curious to know. So I'm very, very clear how you have done it. Any final uh, Two questions before we go. One is uh, across this uh, whole journey, it looks very easy the way you have explained like, okay, I did a step one. And then, uh, in terms of influences, do you want to call out uh, any individual or any book or any personality or anything who kind of inspired or enabled you in some way? Yeah, I think I was, to Eshin, on that point, I, I think there's a few different inspirations along the way. But the one thing that was a common theme amongst those inspirations was they were very good at opening up my thought process. Mm. So instead of giving the answers to me, the mentors and leaders that I had were very good at asking the, the question of why. Mm. Why do you believe this strategy will work? Why do you think this will increase our return on investment? Why do you think this expense is required? Why do you think technology is going to move the needle? Mm. There's a lot of why, why, why. And instead of sometimes me preparing something, and maybe that was a bit of a laziness, is I hope <laughs> that someone else gives me an answer, you know, to the to my problem. Mm. The answer was almost there. It just required an extra few why. So the mentors and people, I think if you don't have someone who's constantly questioning, one, your, your vision, your, mm. your sort of motives and and trying to get to the bottom of what you're ultimately looking to achieve. Mm. That's the one person I think people should source and look for in mm. their careers very early on. Um, that's what took me from being a, a private a relationship manager to managing this you know, large business at City. And then that's what inspired me to 
go, well, I could do this on my own if I had the right people around me. It's actually not that scary when you've got the right mentors around you. But to your point earlier, I will add something. It gives you the impression it's easy because at, at the, I think it might give you that impression it's because it seems like a series of the connected, well connected, climbing. yeah, yeah. But along the way, what consciously you had to be front of mind is you needed the hunger to move to the next step. Absolutely. So if you don't have the hunger in whatever you're doing, go find the thing that drives your hunger. Mm. Mm. Because hunger gets rewarded more so than not than just having textbook knowledge. Got it. The people, the people that I hired in my businesses, mm. to be honest, mm. you know, they weren't the you know smartest, you know, 99, you know, percentile, top quartile percentile people. They just demonstrated they had a hunger to learn. And for me, that was much more of a, a characteristic that could be nurtured than just having textbook knowledge. But mind you, I'm not discounting all the people that have an amazing, you know, academic profile. But what I was saying there was, for me, work with people who are just as hungry as you. Got it. Got it. Got it. No, absolutely. And what was your hunger all through this? The, the, what kind of, what was in your mind when you say you were hungry to grow and what, what was the hunger for you? I think personally, it was about, I wanted to manage people and I wanted to manage successful teams. And then I realized the biggest thing for me is, can I leave a, a mark on this organization? That they'll remember me for. Mm. So I'm a big believer in, and and people who talk to me about it is I do believe in this this idea of legacy, right? Is mm. have I left that place mm. that I was working or that project in better shape, having contributed more to it than when it started? Awesome. And so yeah, Ashton, that really is where my hunger comes from. Is you know working with people who are like minded, who are just as hungry. And um, believing that I could leave the uh, a bit of a legacy Ma- in Mark, places yeah. that I work. No, I can feel it. You know, the, a lot of these things you said, uh, and so I could I could feel it. I really enjoyed this conversation, and uh, very proud to see uh, somebody in the community at the age of thirty uh, running a high-end fintech uh, company. Is there anything we can anything that is your next challenge where, as a community, we can support in any way? Yeah, look, I definitely think, in particularly the Indian Indian Australian community you know, and broader communities as well. This whole you know, conversation about being brave to take on, you know, new and exciting opportunities and being being comfortable to step out of your your comfort zone to take on, you know, unique challenges, whether that be a new business or a, a pet project or a hobby. I think it's something that, you know, I've seen wonderful sort of individuals in the community take up exciting things. And, you know, I'm, I'm just one person who happened to believe I saw a gap in the market and here I am because I, I just stuck with the right people. And I think the thing is you've got to first have that that sort of personal first step to go, I'm passionate about something, I see a gap, and I just need an opportunity to try and get to the day one. Do you have and enough that, that's uh, my advice. No, I think that's wonderful. I think I, I constantly uh, got reminded that day one, see the day one, implement it fast, do the MVP fast, fail fast if that, that's how it has to go, rather than trying to build a big plan and you know building something and then that's failing, right. you know, it doesn't really make sense. And there's no harm in that, you know? Yeah. There's no harm in that. There's probably limited cost in doing that. Yeah. You know, practically, yeah. it makes a lot more sense, but it allows you to then also build other skills very quickly. 
Got it. So if somebody wants to reach out to you, what's the way, best way to connect with you, Anto? Yeah, sure. I, absolutely. You can connect with me on LinkedIn, send LinkedIn. me a message. You can email me directly. It's Anto, A-N-T-O, at uh, uh, strofro.com. You can email me directly. And by all means, I'm always open to a conversation, always open to meeting new sort of like-minded individuals. And, and also, if you have something that I could learn from, by all means, you know, reach out to me and say, well, Anto, this is something that I think would be of interest to you. So I do um, have a few things yeah, in mind. Yeah, I do have a few things in mind. Oh. I'll share with you uh, after this. And uh, I will also share your platform to the community uh, who are not aware that something of this uh, uh, kind is existing. Well, thanks, Asha. So, ah, you're back. Yeah, so thank you for uh, coming on the show, Anto. Really appreciate and uh, we're very, very thankful for sharing the or insider information about uh, how you've done what you have done so thank you very much for coming on board yeah it's a pleasure thank you Ashan. thank you for listening to the empowering indian expats podcast with your host Ahsan ali hope you too got inspired by anto joseph's story and learn something valuable that you can apply in your career or business. I thoroughly enjoyed talking to Anto. My key takeaways were around building network and also developing win-win relationships, which he did very well in his second role at City. So that's all for now from my side. Let me know what you got out of Anto's story. And if you're looking for your next big adventure, either within employment or wanting to transition to entrepreneurship, do connect with me on LinkedIn. I may be able to help you myself or will connect you with someone who has already been on the journey you are contemplating right now.